Principle six, ask for help. It's lonely at the top. As people who strive to become better and do better, it's tempting to believe the lie that you have to do it all on your own, that you have to beat out the competition, outperform your peers, make a name for yourself, and stake your claim at the top. As I've walked the path of the entrepreneur, I felt this way and ended up isolated and paranoid. But you know what I've realized? It doesn't have to be lonely at the top. Good entrepreneurs know they don't have to do it on their own. And in fact, they know they can't. No lone wolves. Human beings are designed to need help. For years, I thought this was one of our weaknesses. That's because I wanted to be the lone wolf. I would proudly tell others that I had pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. I did it all on my own. And to me, these were bragging rights. But now I see how truly naive that mindset really was. Because from the beginning of time, human beings were made for community. It's part of the rhythm of our world. And it's a big part of my story. It starts at birth. Humans are born before they can fend for themselves. A cow can trot shortly after birth. A bird can fly within a few weeks of hatching. And a puppy leaves its mother to explore a mere month after birth. But human babies are essentially helpless, dependent for many years on others for food, shelter, protection, and education. When I'm sick, I go to a doctor because I need help beyond my own knowledge. The doctor, in turn, uses their training and years of cumulative knowledge to diagnose and treat me. If I try to be the lone wolf in my medical care, I might be dead. A governing board is set up in an organization for the same reason. It is designed to be an objective body that can see the blind spots of a company and its executives in order to help guide them. It doesn't run the company daily. Instead, the board meets together every few months to review progress and provide guidance. Its job is to save the company from disaster and help it thrive. If companies tried to operate as lone wolves without entities like governing boards, they'd be left without support, accountability, or a team to have their back. I mean, just look what happened at Theranos when its board didn't provide oversight for its executives. Before a plane takes off, there is a team of maintenance workers who ensure the plane is flight-worthy. They follow the FAA-approved manufacturer guidelines to inspect the plane. These guidelines lay out very specific rules based on the number of hours flown, the number of landings made, and many more flight-based metrics. When the maintenance is performed, it is logged in a book that is assigned to that specific plane. It provides a record of all the work done to show the plane is maintained appropriately and safe to fly. Rarely do passengers meet these mechanics, and often the pilots don't either. But without them, the plane wouldn't be airworthy. They work quietly behind the scenes to make sure that air travel isn't alone and therefore dangerous experience. The list could go on and on. Yet many entrepreneurs I know have no formal team in place to support and enable their superpowers. Worse yet, this lone wolf attitude is reinforced in the glowing stories we tell about entrepreneurs, lifting them up as if they did everything all by themselves. Good entrepreneurs know better. They know there is no such thing as a lone wolf in this world. And because of that, they value surrounding themselves with the right people. They hire others who are better than themselves. They build teams who can support their vision and make them reality. They aren't intimidated or threatened by others. Instead, they're empowered by them. 
This is the paradox of being an entrepreneur. On the one hand, you need to march to the beat of your own drum. On the other hand, you're dead in the water if you try to go alone. As Steve Jobs famously said in his 2005 Stanford commencement address, your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the result of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. This man put a dent in the universe. He's often held up as the uber entrepreneur. But the reality is that Steve Jobs wasn't a lone wolf. He had an army of 20,000 people behind him. There were teams upon teams that helped him with every aspect of his company. They vetted his intuition, made models to determine viability, and provided pushback when necessary. In the world of any successful entrepreneur, even the loneliest wolf is more of a myth than reality. Warning lights. When we deny the reality that we need people, both in business and in life, we move faster and faster toward a crash. If we pay attention, there are always warning lights telling us we're in danger along the way. Warnings about burnout, warnings about questionable decisions, and warnings about our ego getting in the way. Those warnings are a gift that too often go unopened. About three months into flying scheduled service with Rise, I was finally starting to let other people in the company worry about the minute details of the schedule. One Thursday, I arrived home exhausted and made myself a Rye Manhattan, my favorite medication to numb the ails of the day. I was a few sips into my drink when my chief operating officer called. I let it go to voicemail. Whatever it was, it could wait till tomorrow. But when he quickly called a second time, I saw the warning lights. I took the call. Nick, we've had an aborted takeoff in Austin. Everyone is safe, but we're gathering the details right now. Please call into the emergency conference number so that we can discuss the appropriate response. I quickly sobered up and dialed in. Our last flight of the day had taken off from Austin and was en route to Dallas when an engine light indicating oil pressure loss had flashed on. The pilots, following procedure, shut down the engine to try to prevent additional issues. Most people think that flying on a plane with two engines is safer than one. That thought process makes sense. If you have one engine and it breaks, then you have no engines. But if you have two engines and you lose one, you can still fly on the remaining engine. However, if you ask any professional pilot, they will tell you that if an untrained pilot loses one engine, the plane will flip over and the remaining engine will get you to the crash site faster. Luckily, in this situation, our professionally trained pilots knew what to do. They made a loop back to Bergstrom Airport with one engine and were greeted by the emergency crew as they approached the runway. The plane was towed back to the hangar and the passengers and pilots got the plane and safely into the terminal. Crisis averted. When the investigation was complete on the plane, it turned out that the engine was fine. It wasn't a mechanical failure in the plane. It was an error with the warning light. There was no reason to shut down the engine, but the pilots didn't know that at the time. They followed the warning signs because that's what they were trained to do. Shortly after this episode, I was in Hollywood driving my friend's Volkswagen Carmen Ghia late at night up Benedict Canyon. We took it out for a quick run just to see how it would feel since it had been 20 years since I had driven one, my first car. On the way down the canyon, everything was working fine. But on the way back up, we started to smell the scent of burning oil. Liam brought it to my attention, but I assured him it was only the smell of a 40-year-old VW powering up the hill. It was a smell I knew well, and because of that, I ignored the warning lights from the car. 
But as I pulled into his driveway, the entire back of the car exploded in flames. We were safe, but the car would not live to see another day. I think about this incident frequently. So often in my life, I've ignored warning lights, refusing to shut down the engine and return to the airport and instead powering on, believing that one engine was enough to get me to my destination. In fact, often when I knew I was in danger, I would ignore or even remove the warning lights completely. I'd isolate myself from the people who I knew would question my decisions and my motives. Friends and family members who knew my tendencies and could sit me down to have hard conversations. People who would flash warning lights in my life. That's because those warning lights were too inconvenient. They would slow me down. They'd keep me from getting to my desired destination on my time frame. But let me ask you this. Can you make it to your desired destination if your vehicle explodes while you're on your way? There's a reason we have warning lights and a reason that protocol insists we listen to them no matter why we believe they're going off. The reason is clear. They may save us from destruction. The moral of the story is this. Be like the pilots, not like me. It doesn't matter what you feel about a situation. It matters what the warning lights are saying. The lauded psychiatrist Elvin Simrad taught us this. The greatest source of our suffering are the lies we tell ourselves. I know from personal experience this is true. You probably do too. And one of the biggest lies I believed is that warning lights would hold me back. Because the reality is those warning lights in our lives flash for a reason, a good reason. We just can't always see that reason on our own. The people in your life whom you love, who are of sound mind, who care about you and who have your back, your spouse, your children, your mentors, your peer leaders, they are your warning lights. When they are all flashing, telling you the same thing at once, my admonition to you is listen to them, or you might end up calling 911. 911. Ron is one of my clients who lives in another state. I've changed his name for anonymity reasons, but his story is true. We meet in person several times a year, and in between, we have video calls. There are several long-term goals that he is working on in both his career and his personal life that I'm helping him with as we go. On one call with Ron, I could tell something was wrong. His face was pale and his eyes were bloodshot. He had postponed several of our calls already, which is what usually happens when someone needs to discuss something uncomfortable. One look at him on that video screen confirmed what I had suspected. Something was up with Ron. I start all my calls with clients by asking the same question, do you have any 911s? This is intended to move the big item that is derailing everything else to the front of the call. It's designed to help them bring it right up and deal with it. Ripping the band-aid off isn't always the right move, but often it's necessary to snap us to attention appropriately. With Ron, I barely got the 911 question out of my mouth before he responded. Nick, I'm in a bit of a crisis. I don't know what to do. My wife took the kids to visit her family. She was supposed to be gone for two weeks, and that was three months ago. We've been in a rough patch for most of our 15 years of marriage, but this is the worst it has ever been. This happened in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis. He and his wife reasoned that a rural location was better for their kids during that time than the populated city they lived in. However, now Ron wanted to see his kids. He wanted his family back at home, and he wanted his marriage together. I responded carefully. Wow, 
That is a lot to handle, Ron. I'm sorry to hear the stress that you are dealing with, and I'm thankful that you have chosen to tell me the truth of the situation. Oh, you haven't heard the worst part, he continued. Our oldest daughter is not my child, and she doesn't know it. My wife was unfaithful in our first year of marriage, and she got pregnant. Do you want to know what's amazing about the human brain? It is never at rest. We are always sensing, imagining, dreaming, fretting, or acting out possible scenarios in our lives. A neuron by itself can't do much, but when 86 billion of them work in concert, we can produce greatness. Like John Coltrane's A Love Supreme, Elon Musk's SpaceX, or the mapping of the human genome. Or we can produce our own personal hell. For a decade, Ron's brain had been doing mostly the former, helping him climb the corporate ladder and achieve incredible success. Now it had turned on him doing the latter. Unchecked, our brains can torment our lives. Through sobs, Ron continued. Every time I want a change in our marriage that my wife doesn't want, she threatens to tell my kids. My kids are my life. If they knew I wasn't their biological father, it would ruin them. Ron, you have two options and neither of them is pain-free, I told him. The first is to stop lying and begin to tell the truth. This will bring on a rush of acute pain that will seem to be too much. But I can promise you, you'll make it through given enough time. The second option is to do nothing. If you choose this route, tomorrow you'll wake up and your pain will be ever so slightly worse. And the day after that, it will be slightly worse. You will try to numb it with accolades or alcohol or any number of other things, but it will be there. It will stay below the surface, ready to explode at the most inopportune time. I paused to give him time to consider before continuing. Here's the deal. Your kids are going to find out that you aren't perfect. And the longer it takes for them to come to that truth, the worse it will be when they do. The ball is in your court to make a decision. He responded, The current situation is no longer tenable. I need to make a change. What do I do? Tell the truth, I responded. Living in community. Good entrepreneurs surround themselves with the right influence. They choose to invite people who make things better all around into their lives and their work. So if you want to be a good entrepreneur, and I think you do, I mean, you made it this far in the book, you must look honestly at the people you've invited to participate in your life and ask yourself, are they making me better? Are they stretching me to push forward even when it's uncomfortable? Are they holding me accountable to the standards I espouse? Are they safe to hold my deepest, darkest secrets confidentially? Are they building me up or dragging me down? This is so important because who you spend your time with has an influence on who you will become. Don't be ashamed to need help. You have a journey to accomplish and you will need help from many along the way. So be intentional about finding the kind of people who will help you and who will spur you on toward becoming the kind of entrepreneur, the kind of person you want to be. The triangle of life. How do you do that exactly? Well, I think every good entrepreneur needs to have three types of people in their lives. A mentor, a mentee, and a mensch to create what I call the triangle of life. Mentor, mentee, mensch. Each role has a specific purpose and associated tasks. Whereas my menches walk through life beside me, 
My mentors are people who have already walked the path where I'm headed. They prepare me for what's ahead while I, in turn, help my mentees the third point of the triangle by guiding them on their own journeys. Good entrepreneurs operate in this triangle. You may be impressive as a lone wolf, but can you build and grow your business on your own? It's possible, but you will only be more successful if you bring people around you. How to be a mentor. On a cool fall morning of my freshman year of college, Jim Carr, the executive vice president of Harding University, walked by. I waved to him and he waved back before abruptly stopping and motioning for his walking companion to follow him. They were headed in my direction. Good morning, Nick. I'd like to invite you to meet someone very important to me. This is Calvin Howe. To me, Calvin was to love Calvin. He was short, impeccably dressed, and when he smiled, his eyes seemed to disappear almost as if his cheeks swallowed them whole. He had very little hair on his head, and he was almost always smiling. It was like looking into the face of an emoji. You couldn't help but smile back at this wonderful man who was small in stature but giant in character. Calvin, this is Nick Kennedy. He's the student I was telling you about. Wait, why was Jim Carr telling this man something about me, and what could he possibly be telling him? Oh, I see, Calvin replied. Tell me a little about yourself, Nick. In that moment, Calvin was thoughtful, kind, and present, almost as if he had been on the way to meet me specifically. I remember feeling comfortable in his presence, so when he extended an invitation to lunch with him, I accepted right away. Through Jim, Calvin had heard about my dad and wanted to know how he could help. He was always asking how he could help. After those initial meetings, Calvin became a surrogate father to me. Anything he had, he offered to me. He invited me to his lake house and gave me free reign when I was there, including the use of his boat and jet skis. I would show up, often with a friend in tow, and Lois, Calvin's kind and gracious wife, would immediately start to feed us and give us iced tea or lemonade. I could talk to Calvin about anything. He always felt present and never rushed, always ready to listen and share his time and resources generously with me. He counseled me on what jobs to take and what investments to make and impressed on me the importance of time. Calvin stood in the gap for me and helped me navigate some of life's toughest decisions. He never told me outright what to do, but instead he spoke in parables. Parables that I still play through my head today. One of the best life lessons he taught me had to do with knowing when to say enough by creating your number. That is, what is the amount of wealth you would like to have in your wildest dreams? Calvin and Lois decided early on in their marriage what amount of wealth they wanted to have and committed to give away everything after they reached that point. They had plenty of money, multiple homes, and successful businesses, but they also had a map of the United States that contained dozens of colored dots, representing the organizations they helped through donations and other resources. They wanted for nothing, and their generosity was life-changing to thousands of people. Cultivate a superpower of knowing when to say enough. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Every good entrepreneur needs a Calvin. And every good entrepreneur needs to find a way to be a Calvin to somebody else. A good mentor will have the ability to, first, listen. People are constantly communicating and sometimes they even use words. Second, they will strip away everything that doesn't matter. Focus is necessary to allocate our limited resources wisely. Third, they will be a professional question asker. In order to get the right answers, you have to ask the right questions. Fourth, they'll provide perspective. 
give perspective to your mentee based on the path you have previously walked. And fifth, they will tell stories. We don't remember presentations, we remember stories. How to be a mentee. While Calvin was investing in me, he asked me to invest as well. But since I didn't know what I didn't know, he simply asked me to be intentional in our relationship, reminding me that he would do whatever he could to help me, but that I needed to ask for the help. He forced me to be a critical thinker, stripping away all that didn't matter and getting to the core issues. He did this by constantly asking me why. As in, Calvin, I'm thinking about taking this job with a startup. What do you think? Why? He would respond. Well, because I'm tired of the corporate world and I want to try something else, I would tell him. Why? Because I'm bored. Why? Because I have more to give. Why? Because it took me about three months to figure out how to do my current job and now I can do it in my sleep. Why? Because it is a menial task and I can look at the calendar next month and know what I will be doing on each day and that is making me crazy. This would go on and on until he would say something like, well, I suppose you ought to try something else, but I would be careful about the path of entrepreneurship. It's not for the faint of heart. Yeah, no kidding, Calvin. Through these conversations, he was answering my questions by training my brain to not rest until it came to a satisfactory conclusion that led to the truth. Often we think the role of the mentee is to show up and have wisdom rain down on us. But in my experience, humans are pretty poor mind readers. So when you show up to meet with your mentor, come to them with a question that needs to be examined and then listen intently. On a real practical level, you might be asking, how do you even find a mentor? Well, look in your life at people who are living in a way that you would like to live. Then simply approach them and ask them for some of their time to help you with specific questions. By doing this, the two of you can get to know each other and get a feel for what it might be like to be in a mentor-mentee relationship. If that meeting goes well, you might ask for an additional meeting to follow up or to discuss another topic. If you like the way the relationship is heading, then you can ask them to mentor you. But remember to be specific about what you want. And if you don't know what to ask for, tell them that. I bet they have a good framework for how to move forward. Finally, don't be discouraged if they turn you down. It most likely has nothing to do with you and they are simply expressing their boundaries. To be a good mentee, you'll have the ability to Number one, clarify what you need. Asking for what you need allows you and your mentor to know where to focus. Number two, choose wisely. Seek counsel from the right people. Number three, under-promise and over-deliver. On time is late and 10 minutes early is on time. Number four, mind the time. If time is the most valuable resource, guard your mentor's time like an armored truck. And number five, be invested. Respect your mentor for the free and valuable gift they are giving you. How to be a mensch. I walked into one of my favorite restaurants in Dallas, Neighborhood Services, ready to make the case for why everything in my marriage that was wrong was Angela's fault. I believed I had reams of evidence that could convince the most rational and balanced jury of this fact. At some point along the way, I had stopped being a partner in the marriage and started collecting evidence instead. I ordered a drink and waited for Jeremy to arrive as I scrolled through my emails and Slack and responded to the metaphorical fires that had started that day. A few moments later, Jeremy entered, ordered his drink, and asked how I was doing. We had done away with small talk years ago, so I took this as my cue to unleash my torrent of evidence. I was more intense with each sentence, knowing that Jeremy would not be easily convinced. 
He had known Angela and me for nearly our entire marriage, and like most people, he knew that I got the better end of the deal when Angela took my hand in marriage. Intoxicated on the numbing effect of my first drink, I ordered a second, intent on doing my best to ignore my emotions. I waited for Jeremy to respond to my accusations. He sat back in his chair, and in his laid-back Texas drawl, he said some of the most important words I'd ever heard. I don't know, Nick. It seems to me that if you are willing to work on a new relationship after your marriage, you might as well use that same energy to work on your current marriage. As Flannery O'Connor says, the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. Jeremy was right, and I was pissed. I wanted to win the argument, and he wanted me to win in life. There is nothing more hostile to reality than self-deception. Jeremy was at that moment a mensch to me. A Yiddish and German word, mensch means someone to admire and emulate. Just like countless other times before, Jeremy saved me from making a self-inflicted poor decision. He was able to point out my blind spots and help me see what I either refused to see or couldn't see. Unlike a mentor who's walked the path before, a mensch is walking right beside you in a similar season of life. Every good entrepreneur needs a mensch to walk with. And they also need to strive to be the kind of mensch others will want to emulate. In order to find a good mensch, look for these attributes. Number one, provide reality. Be a mirror reflecting what you see with precision, clarity, and love. Number two, provide a relationship. Sit in the well with each other and understand your needs. Number three, be present. Show up when no one else will. Number four, not try to fix it. Provide a space for you to hear yourself talk. It's remarkable what we can tell ourselves. And number five, instill confidence. Sometimes all we need is someone to believe in us. As you create your legacy, you'll realize too the power of pouring into others, both by being a mensch for them and mentoring them. You get to give back. Because as the good entrepreneur, you know that your success is about more than just you. And one of the greatest gifts is to be able to help those around you. Okay, so here's the end of chapter homework. Create or bolster your triangle of life. Can you identify at least one person for each of these roles? If you can't think of any names of people who are in your triangle, then your job is simple. Begin to look for people with whom to cultivate these relationships. It can take months and even years before you find the right fit. Just be aware of opportunities as you develop and continue in relationships with people. If you can identify people for those roles in your life, it's because you recognize the value of surrounding yourself with good influences. Take out your journal and write down their names, why they are in your triangle, and what you can do to enhance those relationships. Look at the five skills listed in each section below the mentor, mentee, and mensch, and give yourself a grade of 1 to 10, 1 being poor and 10 being excellent, for how you are performing regarding each skill. Which skills are you excelling at? That's a score of 8 to 10. Which skills need a little more work to improve? That's a score of five to seven. Which skills need a major overhaul? And that's a score of one to four. So again, to review, mentoring skills. Number one, listen. Number two, strip away everything that doesn't matter. Number three, be a professional question asker. Number four, provide perspective. Number five, tell stories. Under the mentee skills, Number one, clarify what you need. Number two, choose wisely. Number three, 
underpromise and overdeliver. Number four, mind the time. And number five, be invested. And finally, under the mensch skills, number one, provide reality. Number two, provide a relationship. Number three, be present. Number four, not try to fix it. And number five, instill confidence.